0: Okay, so good morning everybody and welcome to the panel entitled Reading and Translating Across Borders. Um, my name is Sophie Hayward and I'm going to be the discussant for today's panel and I'm a lecturer in French at the University of Reading and also at the University of Tour at the moment and I specialise in children's literature and publishing. So I am really looking forward to this panel. And I just wanted to briefly apologise. Um, I've got a three-month-old daughter and I kind of was wildly optimistic about what we can do on maternity leave. <laughs> 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 Just <the> experience maybe. <laughs> yeah, but particularly embarrassing for an <laughs> a supposed expert in childhood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very much aware from what I've seen at the conference that there's all sorts of really interesting discussions that are taking place across uh, the panels, and so I'll make sure I'll follow the um, uh, model where I collect questions at the end. Um, just to really make sure those conversations uh, carry on. And I do apologize if I say something that's kind of repeating what's already been said before. Okay, so without further ado, I'll introduce our two speakers and then we can get straight on. So, our first speaker is um, Catherine Reichel, um, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literature at Princeton University. And, her research uh, focuses at the intersections of literature, art, and culture in 20th century Russia. And she has a book forthcoming with Cornell, I think it's next year, um, on photography and writing in Russia, which considers the texts of author, photographers, including Leonid Andreev, Mikhail Krishving, and I will stop mispronouncing those names now. (laughs) Um, She's also, and I think we're going to learn about this as well, heading up um, a research project on Soviet children's books using the Princeton's Kotsin Collection Holdings, which includes a large-scale digital humanities project on illustration in Soviet children's books titled *Playing Soviets, so, okay. Um, And then our second speaker is Yulia Komska, who is a cultural historian of the Cold War and associate professor of German studies at Dartmouth College. And she's the author of The Icon Curtain, the Cold War's Quiet Border, which was published with Chicago University of Chicago Press in 2015. And today's, today's paper sorry, uh, relates to her ongoing book project, which is entitled If Curious George Could Speak, H.A. and Margaret Ray's Life, Art, and the Gap Between. So, Kat, if I can hand over to you. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> so...
1: Apologies in advance, this is the first speculative and experimental approach to some problems I've encountered in the study of Soviet press and book production. Uh, before I toss us into the work, which is at the very center of my paper today, that's M. Elin's Raskaz of Planya, The Story of the Great Plan, I will wind through the inspiration for the project, both material and structural. So the first is the ever-growing... Uh, I'm sorry, my slides are actually backwards here, I'm gonna go through this. The first is an ever-growing digital humanities project which is called Playing Soviet. The interac- interactive database is formed on selected illustrations from Soviet children's books drawn from the Coats and collection of children's books at Princeton. It features robust metadata structure and rich English language annotations, which I'm gonna focus on here. So if we were to move through, we can talk about the functionality if you're interested in it um, at the end, but I'm gonna look at the annotations. So we have little, Pinpoint drops, you can click on these drops and annotations will pop up alongside the illustrations as you see here. So, what we hope will happen um, is that our contribution will bring these images, treated like individual artifacts, into new spheres of exchange and accessibility. Undeniably, though, such an interface introduces new text into the image space. Here we have the transposition not of one medium or genre to another, not something like photography to painting or painting to photography, but rather a new mediation of that image, a digital presentation of a mass-reproduced book remediated and translated for our English-speaking audience. That is, we have a new object in the digital object. Text and image here are made of the same stuff. This object is limited in presentation by the platform of that presentation. This is a Drupal interface. And the skills of those who can adapt to that platform in the ways we think will best converse with our user, with our interlocutor. Moreover, in articulating these readings on top of representations, representation, on representation we've created an inevitably biased object. To quote Levmanovich, digital objects represent, construct some features of physical reality at the expense of others, one worldview among many, one possible system of categories among numerous others. This is all achieved in the creation of the digital object from its selection to its conversion, the conversion of analog media, which was once continuous in its place in the book, um, and it's become something now discrete and disconnected. And then, of course, we have the secondary transformation in its further articulation as an annotated object. Now, I'm gonna get ceremonious, and it will not match very well, but with Walter Benjamin writing on the task of the translator reminds us that her task is to find the intention toward the language into which a work is to be translated. On the basis of an echo of the original is awakened in it. Now, in order to consider how this echo might be maintained visually, I'm gonna turn to and do a truly horrible thing. And I'm sorry, these were a little bit out of order. Um, (laughs) um, This uh, this is the photographically enabled capabilities of the Google Translate app. So Google Translate's app now allows either for a live continuous translation and scrolling over an image or textual space, or to take a photograph and then later translate the text through a manual highlight function enacted by the user, by your finger, which you can see highlighted, highlighted this text. Let me see if I can get this to work, yeah. Right here along the bottom. Um, So here are some iPhone screenshots um, of a photograph, a photographed piece of a photographically illustrated children's book Petyash from 1926 with photomontages by Gustav Klutzis, very famous photomontage artist. Here we can see actually that the text comes out pretty close in these simple, in these simple uh, moments, highlighting his name, however, which shows up here at the bottom right. It doesn't, it can't read the handwriting, of course, if it gets a little bit, a little bit outside of standard text fonts, it can't do it. Um, If we also take a page with experimental typography, or even here where we have line breaks broken up by illustration, the the app will also break down. It will only try to translate word fragments here. Um, So Google Translate, while horrific at translating, and certainly I think at capturing anything like intention, it offers us something visually here of that echo articulated by Benjamin that is the capture of the space that is the confluence of text and image, that which actually in this case constituted the original utterance. Considering these screenshots like translated objects ready made by the iPhone app, we encounter a novel translation filter which visualizes translation as an additive function. Literally here building a layer upon the original, a new screen through which to view and read that original. The selective function forming each of my digital examples inform my thinking about the meta-organization of the remainder of my presentation for you today. My choices will replicate the kind of selections made in playing Soviet. You will get only a partial, disconnected view of the life of images playing out in the many iterations of a first five-year plan classic for young adult readers, M. Ilins, This is the story of the Great Plan published in 1930, a work which went viral before viral networks existed at the start of the 1930s. Along the top you have Russian editions, and along the bottom you just have, for example, a French edition, which I'm sadly not gonna talk about much today. Um, In the middle, the British edition, I'm gonna talk a lot about this one, and then the American edition on the right here. In order to introduce you to the work of Im Elin, specifically the story of the Great Plan, Im Elin is the pen name for um, Ilya Marshak, who has a more famous brother, who Samuel Marshak, who wrote children's books of the same period. I'm going to turn to a review in the journal New Masses in 1931. The review reads, this book is a treat. I pity the poor highbrow who scorns to glance at a primer. You'll miss the clearest and most interesting short account of the five-year plan that has yet appeared. He will miss, also, an example of propaganda art of a very high quality. Elin is a young engineer who knows his turbines, power shovels, rolling mills, and harvester combines, not as the cruel toys of a profiteering class, but as giant servants with which the workers will create abundance for all." So This is clearly the sympathetic reading of the radical left in response to the celebration of the industrial successes of the first five-year plan, as articulated by Elin. This review largely replicates the thrust of the introduction by George Counts, uh, the American um, uh, education theorist in the John Dewey School, and intermediary friendly with the new Soviet Union, and most immediately for us, the figure serving as the conduit for the book's translation into English for both the British and the American edition. They share the same translation. So key to my short analysis today will be the ways in which the translation of Eileen's primer functioned visually. So here's we move through these. For is clear not only from contemporary reviews of the book and a quick perusal of the book itself, the photographs and drawings mounted by Mikhail Razulievich form a key piece of the first five year plan's graphic imaginary presented. And these, I'm going to focus largely on the industrial sites um, that are key here. Um, Razulievich did the photo montage covers. Um, he was also a photomontage artist. This is at least one other piece that we can see he did. This is a poster, not for the book, but outside. This is uh, at MoMA. But you can actually see um, some of the replicated photo fragments, or at least the same subjects, re-articulated in the photo montage here for the poster. Eileen's text, in fact, opens with an introduction and an overview of his graphic content. He writes, there are books with stories, with pictures, with poems, books, interesting to read and look at. There are also books with figures and tables. Here is a book which consists entirely of figures and tables, yet it's more interesting than any story of adventure. And this is actually very confusing because there's a picture of a book with tables, but this is also, his book also has tables and pictures, so he's sort of confounding and confusing with the visual imagery here. He says of his book, in this book, every figure is a picture, Let us look at a few random figures from its pages. And that's what you have there at the left. You can see the numbers, 51, 378,000, 3,385, and 42. And then a puzzle follows and says, what is this? Now, I'm going to pause here as we encounter the solution in Russian, which is it? right. This is on the next page. The figures are revealed in number and in picture. While not, in fact, drawing, as promised by the language um, of Elin, he says we have photographs. These miniaturized reprodu- these reproductions of miniaturized photographs makes a visual argument that every figure is a picture, and it's likely that every picture is a figure, an illustration of a statistical fact. Thus, we see here the model for imagining graphically and photographically um, the figures that follow. It provides a visual concretization of Illin's figures. The solution is differently rendered in each of the English translations. In the American, which is at left, just the solution objects are named. There are no pictures. In our British edition, the figures are drawn uh, with picture excerpts forming an amalgamated synthesis of the more numerous photographic fragments of the Russian. In a sense, funneling, it's a funneling effect of the graphic content that we saw from photographs to drawing. So my question is, what can we glean from these graphic choices in the process of translating Ilene's story of the Great Plan? So first, I'm going to reflect on illustration's function. In the Formalist classic essay on illustration in 1922, Yuri Tinyanov would claim that translation or adaptation between the language of poetry and even prose and that of illustration is impossible. He says that the, concre- the concreteness, concreteness of the poetic work is not commiserate with the concreteness of visual art. The main device for the concretization of word, simile, and metaphor is meaningless for drawing, for painting. Certainly, we're dealing with a very different notion of concrete or solidification when we encounter photo illustration in Illin's book. But such a foil bears playing out. During exactly these years of the first five-year plan, the rise of the production book, that's the kniga organically meets its counterpart in photographic illustration, ushering in a real golden age for the photo-illustrated children's book. Here in the literal celebrations of constructions, a different kind of concrete, find a ready counterpoint in the concretization provided by photography, its own meta-reflection of industrial production as a technological medium itself. And I do intend here a reversal of Tinyanov's concreteness of the poetic word as founded in simile and metaphor. Tinyanov's anxiety was one of literalness over the literary. Here, photographic illustration and its very literalness creates a depth of mimetic and metonymic meaning rather than metaphorical. Here is Soviet Russia. Here is Russia's plan, metonymically rendered, and you may enter here, mimetically. So here we have this first functioning in reading and deciphering the pictures. That's what we have it left. And then by proxy, in the latter half, you have this self-recognition effect. These pioneers, this is the last image in the book, uh, make radio receivers themselves, sort of inviting you to also make radio receivers yourselves. By, um, in the coming year, there'll be 75,000 such radio receivers in the countryside. Illustration in particular, the illustrated book was a point of pride too for the new Soviet state, just a few years after the aforementioned Tinyanov essay, as evidenced at least in part in the accounts of the magazine VUX, uh, which is the All Union Society of Cultural Relations Abroad. It's named after uh, the same organization, so your USSR's PR firm. In an issue of Volks from 1931, we find amongst an overview of artistic organizations and their works a turn to graphic art. Here it says that modern graphic art in the USSR is the true child of the revolution. The rapid development of graphic art both as, result, as, as regards drawings, engravings, actions, and lithography is explic- explicable by the fact that it did not require so great an expenditure of energy as other forms of art. They are, after all, the most democratic form of art. Hence, the tremendous development of late of wood engraving, so important for mass art, so easily reproduced, so moderate in price. And this speaks to another issue in the same magazine wherein the preponderance of work illustrating the history of revolutionary struggle consists chiefly in black and white and wood engraving. Um, and the, the uh, engraving at the upper left by Favorsky is one that illustrates this point. And this is also partly owing to the printing industry crisis and the difficulty of preparing mechanical photo prints. The illustrated children's book is framed in the same language for this audience abroad as a vehicle for new graphic styles. Here, of course, artists are described as overcoming the constraints of poor paper and just emerging restructured publishing outlets. Illustrators were able to, again, achieve an economy of graphic means, which is even particularly successful abroad, not only because they merit such, but of course foreigners don't read Russian. But in all these cases, this is really a a material deterministic reading. We have an account of the successful development of a graphic language formed under dire material constraints, triumphantly propelling Soviet art and illustration beyond the bounds of traditional forms, beyond the dichotomies of high and low art, and beyond old Russian traditional or Western influences. And of course, so does this description turn, and this is unsurprising in the Soviet context, the material channel into an ideological one. So, I've selected our particular point of entry into Ilin's plan um, uh, around the imaging of the Dnepr Dam project, Dneprastroy, here. As Ilin's text reads, we all read and hear that the Dnepr is being constructed, on the Dnepr is being constructed a great electric power station. There's not a person in the Soviet Union who has not heard of Dneprastroy. And it was everywhere. It was everywhere in the beginning of the 1930s, from other children's books um, to every propaganda outlet. The Dnieper coverage in Elin's book is also central to its reviews in English. It's not surprising that the Dnieper stroy project would be the center of the American imaginary. The largest dam in the world under construction on Soviet soil also had a decidedly American character, from the American Colonel Hugh Cooper as chief consulting engineer to American industrial goods providing the building blocks of the project. Also in 1931, the same year that Eline's book, the second edition of Eileen's book was published, Margaret Burke White's uh, photographs of Dniparastroi were also published alongside an articulation of exactly these American elements in her photo book Eyes on Russia. The world's largest dam served not only as a frontispiece for the book, but also as the centerpieces of a chapter and short photo essay. Now here as we move through the slides, I want to note that some of these prints I've reproduced for you today are of a higher quality than others. This latter one, uh, from a mass-produced edition of her book with rotogravure images, obscure the detail of the individual photographs and their subjects, which is both a product of the backlighting in this case and of printing, leaving us, in the case of the cranes, with a print which belongs more to the quality of the photo étude of the pictorialists of sort of an earlier age, or as we will see, the boldly drawn lines of ink illustration. In no small part is this a product of the complexities of co- converting a photograph into ink, which is in itself a translation. As Richard Benson tells us, the fundamental problem is that photographs have tonal gradations in ink. That ink, when printed by relief or planographic processes, does not. Black ink is always black. It either goes down on the sheet and makes a black mark, or it is not there and the paper is white. The solution to this problem, it has always been to break up the picture into small particles and to vary the number of those particles to emulate tone. The wood engraving, for example, achieves this through a refined set of hand-cut lines. When the small marks cover a large percentage of the paper, we get dark tones. When they're widely separated, we get light, we get light. And here we have an older uh, engraving of Fyodor Tchutchev. So first I would suggest that we can read the translated images of both New Russia's primer, this is our American edition, and Moscow has a plan, the British edition, as part of a long-standing tradition of, of transmuting an image for print to increase its legibility. Um, and also for speed and cost, as suggested by my overview of Soviet printing, for they are largely done after the American pho- after the Russian photographs, as you can see here. But I would suggest that these illustrations are of yet another order, and one whose visual imprint, while still based on the photograph, with its echo in Benjaminian terms, will allow for an exploration of the connotative meanings below the printed surface. I'm not going to dwell on these uncredited American ones. Um, in fact, I'll just skip over this and turn and turn to the William Kermode. Um, and these are from the British edition here. Uh, he's an Australian working in England. So William Kermode, um, who did the illustrations for the British edition, um, and these are really by far the more striking of the two, and they're rendered in his bold signature line of cuts. In order to better articulate their function, we now turn to the section, River, Stand Back. Um, let me slip ahead here, here we go. In the Russian, the opening and joinder states, look at the photographs, there are four. Here, Eileen's text fills out the picture in the pictures. There are difficulties and obstacles in overcoming uh, work on dam construction and wet conditions that need to have been dry. Um, and the text clearly articulates each of these steps, um, unfolding a se- semi-cinematic denouement. Having once conquered the obstacles before them and forcing the river to stand back, the workers and engineers have turned fairy tale into reality, which is an oft-repeated formula of the age. We turn back to Mode. In the British edition, we are instructed to look at the picture one on page 63. Um, And here, it's also just admitted in the American edition, just to say. So rather than the four images, we have an alternative reduction of the progression, a presentation of iconicity. In such a transmutation, the tonalities of the photographic reproductions from the Russian, while poor even there, are lost. The very busyness of construction sites are cleared by the relief print. We might notice sort of in the absence of ink in the white or the excess in black. This example of interpretive translation occurs, too, across book illustration of the previous decade, especially in the bold style of the Russian constructivists. So here we see the snowplow train traveling from an avant-garde journal called Viesh on the left into translation as the cover of a children's book by the Chichagova sisters there on the right. This is a schematic simplification, paring down an image to the simplest utterance, wherein form is maintained in the preponderance of ink, but also clearing the way for the articulation of the book's message, the clear path to the north, which is what we have on the right, the path to the north, just as Dneprastroi is cleared by Kermode's interpretation. Alongside the war with the river, so back to Ilin, still focused on Dneprastroi, we also see this uncaptioned drawing. There's no photographic source for this illustration. This somewhat surreal picture, especially by contrast to the other scaled industrial figures, um, it has this godlike hand (laughs) sort of damming the river, which I think is running down from the top of the page. It turns the projected construction of the river into a model project. It is illuminated in part by a text which explains that building this dam would seem to be a simple matter, but this is easy to say and difficult to do. The presentation of this image also suggests for us an additive reading. That is, in leaving behind the original photographs original in quotes. Uh, Kermode inserts and asserts his hand into the drama of Troy. The illustration with an in Kermode's hand present his intrusion into the plan of the first five-year plan and its imaging, in a sense taking up the book's offer to mimetically and metonymically enter into the project. Now, by way of conclusion, and ruminating on this adaptation, and also this one in particular, I'm gonna turn to Willem Flusser and his philosophy of photography. He says here that in the case of the photograph, information sits loosely on the surface and can be easily converted to another surface. It is not the person who owns a photograph who has power, but the person who created the information it conveys. Thus as objects, their value is negligible. Their value lies in the information they carry loose and open for reproduction on their surface. What we see in our test case today is part of an old story, the fact that photographs have long moved into print via precisely their loose surface, or as BART would perhaps call an adaptation of its denotative function. The photographs of Dnepra-Stroy are emissions seeking reception. They belong to information channels, specifically the information of the first five-year plan, the imaging of the first five-year plan, from the moment they are shot. Presented as photographic illustrations in Hélène's book, they are instrumentalized into a more specific emission, adapted to pages in small and large scale, speaking as the figures of constructions. And I should also emphasize, no longer photographs, but photographic prints. In translations, photographs are transmuted and channeled into a new native language, the power of Kermode's hand. They are interpreted both for their denotative function, service as surface and form, and their connotative meaning, reshaped too by translated text uh, via the visual and a visual interpreter. In a new medium, under a new hand, they might lose evidentiary power. We see this in the loss of detail and the loss of tonality, which makes that which makes a photograph a photograph. They might also very easily be alighted or cut. But as we have seen, the platform formed of the adaptable surfaces of photographs provide a conduit for accumulation in translation. Which in laying ground, and I'm going to play with my electrification metaphor here, in laying the ground across artistic and national boundaries, electrifies potentially new connections between word and image, languages between languages, Russian and English, and between photography and print an infrastructure which is made clear to us in and in through our own scholarly acts of translation. Thank you.
0: OK, thank you very much, Catherine. Um And now we'll move on to Julia Konska, who's going to present um, a paper entitled How International is the Language of Action? The Global Publishing History of H.A. and Margaret Ray's Curious George at Its Limits.
2: Thanks so much, and thank you so much for uh, this amazing conference and for the kind introduction. I'm learning a lot, and I'll just say by way of a brief preface that I'm in a bit of a schizophrenic mind frame with this project. It started out as a fairly theoretical attempt to uh, join the crowd of scholars I mean, it's probably not a crowd yet, but it probably we could <laughs> fill a couch, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> to uh, theorize monolingualism, which for a long time was, as some people have put it, an unmarked case, which means that everybody was talking about multilingualism, presuming and explaining what multilingualism is and its diverse forms, presuming at the same time that monolingualism goes without saying and we all know what it is so it turned out that we don't know what it is and that needs explaining and there are quite a few brilliant scholars who've stepped out and I wanted this project to be at the beginning a kind of a study of American how American literature became monolingual or American children's literature became monolingual um, with example of three um, authors who have achieved remarkable popularity and also wrote serialized books that um, gained wide diffusion worldwide and what it turned out to be is a trade book hopefully or a crossover book that's massively under theorized and is currently a biography of just one couple so I've <laughs> shuttled from one project with one kind of ambition to a different project with a different, different kind of ambition and I'm still juggling a lot of compromises along the way so the structure of the paper reflects that there's a kind of a general framework to set it up and then there's uh, the under theorized um, dive into the life of uh, these two people who I'm going to be talking about. Uh, so to start with uh, the bigger picture, translation and untranslatability once appeared to be two contrasting phenomena. Their recent theorizations, however, approximate them to paradoxical effect. As scholars abandoned the idea of transparent one-to-one language transfer with its supposedly invisible agents that as translators, translation re-emerges as quasi-synonymous with untranslation. And that's a term that somebody, um, Bethany Wigan, has recently used. Um, that is, both result in similar outcomes. They estranged or, dis- estranged or disrupt a native language by retaining or even introducing extraneous elements. They also question the exclusive allegiance to an unadulterated mother tongue, and with it to the so-called monolingual paradigm. They also offer productive resistance against the homogenizing sweep of empire and globalization, which export entire literatures for the purposes of translational monolingualization. And that's David Gramling's term. If anything, in this view, to remain untranslatable or to translate against the grain of transparency is to rebel to stand up for the right to to remain screwed up, as Emily Apter renders Hegelian Typically, this right is seen as rooted in non-standard vernacular, regional, or some other uh, minoritarian language practice. And the rebels themselves, as a rule, are said to step forward in large numbers or disproportionate numbers from refugee, migrant, or minority backgrounds. So what do we make of the occasions when these expected rebels don't rebel, that is, espouse instead the most normative idiom imaginable. What if this idiom engulfs not only language but extends also to strategies of emplotment, textual and visual? And there are some interesting intersections with Cat's paper there. What if the outcome, in this case a book or a book series, downplays word and stresses action, highlighting transparency? and eminent eminent translatability, illuminating a possible path to facile cross-border diffusion. And what then if this seemingly sure recipe for internationalization backfires and becomes an insurmountable roadblock for the work's importation into the author's very own native culture? In other words, how international is the language of action? These questions tend to arise if one attempts to map the worldwide publishing history of America's Anglophone children's classics, written as they often are by multilingual immigrants. And I'll just list a few, Margaret and Hans Augusto in the following H.A. Ray of the Curious George fame, and those are the authors I'll be talking about today. There's also Esfers Slobotkina, as she pronounced her name in an American context, the author of Caps for Sale, and a sequel um, to that. uh, There's Ludwig Bemmelmans, the author of the Madeline series, which is quite well known. There are also more forgotten classics like Louise Fethiot and Roger Duvoisin. They were a Swiss-French-speaking con- uh, couple writing in the 50s, very well-known and very famous authors of Petunia and Happy Lion. And there's also Kate Ceretti, who wrote for more of a juvenile or adolescent audience, the author of The Singing Tree, that was a known book, very well-known book in the 1930s. For these authors, demonstrative multilingualism was a leitmotif in public self-presentation. In media interviews and publisher questionnaires, which they have to fill out every time a book comes out, they boasted their facility with multiple languages and showed off their appetite for learning more. Upon close inspection, however, the manifest polyglottery had little to no apparent utility for their writing, which evinced little code-switching or wordplay few mixed speech registers or other accented features, and as a matter of fact, very little interest in the preoccupation with language as such. Did this language gap, as I call it, between life and art further the diffusion of their work, or did it hinder it? And so now onto the example. In April 1940, the Parisian publishing giant Gallimard offered its fourth picture book contract to Margaret and H.A. Ray a German-Jewish couple with Brazilian passports. Brief acquaintances in childhood and adolescence, Margaret, born Margarete Waldstein, 1906-1996, to uh, no, sorry, 1996, and H.A., born Hans August Dreyasbach, 1898 and 1977, grew up in Hamburg, Germany. As adults, they tried professional luck abroad, separately, she in London, <laughs> he in Rio. It was in Rio that they met again, collaborating, getting married in 1935, and moving to Paris for a belated honeymoon in 1937. In June 1940, they fled the city on the eve of its Nazi capture via Lisbon with a stopover in Brazil en route to New York City. Gallimard's contract for the story of Curious George's francophone forbear Fifi and I can talk later about these cross-cultural title or name, character name differences, with exclusive rights in non-English speaking countries. While taken by Fifi's wily charms, Gallimard editor Jacques Chiffrin, an influential emigre to be nevertheless expressed initial reservations about the narrative's simplicity. Together with his prominent colleagues, the house's co-founder Gaston Gallimard, Gaston's editor Saint Claude, and commercial director Louis Daniel Hirsch, he went as far as to suggest commissioning, quote, a more developed text from a good writer, suggesting that H.A.'s writing was not good enough. This, he proposed, would add to the book's success, noting that H.A., listed as the single author at the time, and I can also speak to that later, would see the result prior to publication. As political uncertainty mounted, this being 1940, On the eve of the Nazi invasion, however, Schifra appears to have persuaded the Gallimars to keep the original writing. But the prospect of adjusting the story to its changing cultural contexts would remain salient for some time. Together with the Ray's other books, Curious George, published as Curious George by Houghton Mifflin in the US in 1941, and as Zozo by Chata and Windus in Great Britain in 1942, had to keep assimilating along with the creators. This was a multi-step process, as translations into other languages followed, most of them successful, and sales numbers rose across borders to keep the once penniless refugee authors fed and closed. Already in 1965, H.A. would observe that Curious George was unusually, and here I'll quote, well-traveled and an exceptional linguist. His books circulate in over a dozen countries and are published in languages from Japanese to Finnish, end quote. Reality, however, could not have been more different. The simian troublemaker, here is yours, that is, (laughs) African-born though he was, uttered nary a word in any tongue. Instead, action, the supposedly boundless vernacular of children's literature, ruled on the page, and the couple banked on its nonverbal cross-border appeal. A global classic appeared to have been born, but just how global was it? The roots of action in the rise creative mantra ran deep. They first grew on the couple's original, out of the couple's original careers in advertising, and then got nourishment from the demands, real and perceived, and that's important, of their first American editor. In 1940, for personal reasons, Grace Allen Hogarth, that American editor, left Chateau and Windus in London and took over the reins of the juvenile department of Boston's Houghton Mifflin. Albeit enthusiastic, her letter attached to the Ray's long-awaited Houghton Mifflin contract for the first American picture book editions of Fifi, the old Curious George name uh, with an option on, on the next two books, specified her expectations for the changes. I do not mean anything more than the general things Hogarth anticipated. Um, I.e. Americanizing the firemen's helmets in Fifi and similar. So there is always, as we've seen, some necessary adaptation of illustrations going on. So you want the buses and the phone booths to look, or at least back in the 40s, you wanted them to look like they would in the country in which the children, listeners, and readers live, rather than in some other place where the authors drew the book in the first place. Upon first impression, the request for Americanization concerned the usual cultural minutiae, but the Rays interpreted it quite expansively. This was not without reasons. The changes, Hogarth went on to divulge, were not merely cosmetic. Some concerned linguistic issues as well. With your approval, she explained, I feel that we can together get a more satisfactory (coughs) text of any of the books that needed, so echoing Gallimard's um, concerns with the simplicity of the narrative and writing that's not good enough. Editing, she suggested, had to start with names. Already on October 22, 1940, only about a month after the author's arrival, Hogarth asked them to change, quote, the French names to the American ones. I feel, she explained, that more familiar names would be easier for American children, quote. The Rays' precarious financial situation did not leave enough room for questioning. As to the necessity of Americanizing the books, H.A. responded on November 10th, I am, of course, prepared to do it. With time, action would become a yardstick for gauging the American spirit of their books and the books of others, by the authors themselves, that is. As though Hollywood directors, the Rays, saw action as their work's standout quality and, at the same time, the quality that distinguished Uh, their work from the authors in their native Germany, uh, whose works Margaret was asked to review for potential U.S. publication at Harper and Sons between 1950 and 1955. I really need someone, one, who knows German, and two, knows American children's books, and three, knows what sort of books I like to do with the Harper imprint, the uh, the famous editor, Ursula Nordstrom, requested in 1950 and Margaret, obliged. She and H.A., as their personal archive of book order catalog clippings suggests, followed the West German, not so much the East German, um, and Austrian children's literature markets closely. And that probably not so much for Cold War reasons, it's just for reasons of facility. Um, And how these book order catalogs got or didn't get around to the West, and it wasn't really that easy to. There were agents distributing Soviet and Eastern Um, Blog books uh, in New York City for American publication, but they didn't necessarily disseminate the catalogs the same way uh, as West German publishers did directly from West Germany. So they followed this market fairly closely, last but not least, due to the the translations of their own books. And the commission from Harper and Son allowed them to co-determine these markets' international reach. It also became an unexpected mirror of their own limited appeal to readers in their native land. Here's how this double bind worked. While reviewing, Margaret enjoys the occasional mixture of sophistication and naivety, and those are her words, which makes the German writing something between children's and grown-up books. And I'm going to be quoting a lot from her uh, in the coming passage. At the same time, even the text that impressed her, Reiner Zimnick's picture book, um, Jonas, the fisherman, being one, appeared to her untranslatable. Zimnik's style, Margaret notes not quite idiomatically, has a charm of its own, which will be a tough job to preserve in English. At times, untranslatability comes up as a properly linguistic challenge and is inevitably dismissed by Margaret as insurmountable. Thus, she balks at snippets of Bavarian dialect, with which Hugo Hartung peppered his but Mary's name was Anne, 1952. Cutting them, Margaret recommended, was the only option was worth, worth entertaining. Even, and she mentions that even as she recommends herself as a prospective translator. And I'll quote a longer passage. There is a part, she writes, where the author makes fun of the Bavarian dialect, which she treats as a foreign language and spells in that way, too. This, of course, is impossible to translate, but could be cut. Speaking of transparency and rendering various uh, dialectal varietals. Also, his allusions to happenings in politics, and this is where you take translation one level further, local affairs and past history may not be readily understood here. But on the other hand, the book gives a good picture of a segment of a life in Germany, and as far as I know, there are so few teenage books which are funny but not slick that it might be worth a try. I might even edit and translate it, if you can afford me, (laughs) and that's meant good. In other cases, the text's alleged untranslatability is less a question of language than of incompatible narrative and pictorial styles projected onto language upon Margaret's first impression. Neither the style of Zimnik's drawings nor his story, she goes on to recommend, would be suitable for picture book age. Instead, she says, it would delight anybody for 15 up. While Zimnik is so good and so promising that it would be a shame to pass him up, it is unclear, and I quote, how the TV and comic book generation of children of this great country, America, of ours would react to old world charm. (laughs) Margaret's image of American children is molded almost exclusively by popular culture and media. Both left its mark on the couple's writing, produced with just such an audience in mind, and conditioned their lack of openness to alternatives. Zimnick's other books, fresh off the press in post-war Germany, garner even more modest praise from Margaret. One, The Baron, The People, she notes, gets more melancholic but also sort of wanders off in different directions and gets weaker. Would its first half, she wonders, and I quote, make a book in itself ending with the Baron, his masters triumphing over the enemies, a nice happy ending the American way, end quote. Other authors she files under the rubric of Overwritten, too slow, and too much of a good thing. Or else, old-fashioned, long-winded, and very irritating. I do not think that because the book sold so well in Germany, it would sell well here, too. She comments on Gerd von Baswitz's classic, Peter's trip to the moon. To the verdict, she adds more than a hint of a cliche. I used to think the taste is the same all over the world, but that just ain't so. And she has a pretty thick German accent uh, in real life. (laughs) The Germans, even nowadays, seem to be able to take surprising amounts of long-windedness, sentimentality, and clumsiness. I don't believe that any child here in the U.S., trained by movies, comics, etc., to tempo, quick action, and terseness of style, would put up with that. Very little action, she interjects in her response to Bruno Brehm's Auf Wiedersehen Susanne, about an upper crust girl growing up in pre-World War I Vienna. The book sold 250 copies in Germany, she says, and the blurb says that it is tender and full of magic and written by a real poet. All this escapes me. I disliked it from the very beginning, and my only explanation for the sales is that the copyright is from 1939, and maybe no better reading matter was available at the time, period, remember? (laughs) Or else the German taste is just odd at times. End quote. The dislike she observes with a curious slip of pen, spelling American the French way, is mutual. Very few modern American juveniles have been sold Germany, as any agent will confirm. In other words, the Germans don't seem to share our taste either. This other side of the story, not, German not, Germans not sharing their taste, in which the rays landed on the receiving end of criticism is evident in their correspondence, and this is the concluding section, with their German and Scandinavian publisher Per Hjeld Karlsson of Karlsson Illustrations for in August 1965, Carlson mentions in a letter to the couple that only excerpts from various Curious George books have thus far been published in Germany, Denmark, and Sweden. On October 22nd, he offers them a $600 advance, not very large, for all three editions and 7% royalties. At some point, Carlson realizes that a German translation of Curious George Rides a Bike appeared with Georg Verlag in 1956 and was a complete flop to be discontinued. And conveniently, by 1966, Westermann withdraws from producing picture books altogether. And so Carlson acquires the unsold stock of books and the rights from the Cuxhaven-based proxy, Pomps By late 1965, the contracts for Niki Nufeken, curious George's name in Sweden, Peter Pedal in Denmark, and Coco in Germany are signed. So nothing, <laughs> they share nothing in common, the names themselves. Consider drawing a new cover, Carlson tells H.A. Although, and I quote, you don't need it, as we can very well use the first, first illustration in the book, the happy monkey swinging from Maliana. If you make a new cover, we attach greater importance to a charming situation than a dramatic one. And the forewarning was prescient. In preparation for the German release in March 1966, Carlson asks H.A. to confirm his German American identity, and I quote, as we think this information will interest the German buyers and assist the sales in Germany. End quote. As H.A. obliges without a mention of his Jewishness or, in fact, the bias against the Germans for that matter, the publisher cautions against any rash hopes for brisk success. Germany, he points out, is an especially difficult market for translations unless it is of re- reputable classics. Indeed, the reciprocal antipathy on which Margaret had picked up on already uh, in the 1950s continues to haunt the couple as they attempt to cross into the German market the only market from Japan to Brazil that denies Curious George his habitual stardom. The Danish and Swedish translations sell well. In Denmark, 8,000 copies sell by the end of 1968, but the German sales remain sluggish despite the country's much greater population. The entire German run of Curious George books sells only uh, 514 copies yearly between the original publication in 1956 and 1968. For comparison, the Rays' other translated books approached 22,000 sold copies in the German-speaking lands over the same period. Carlson is at a loss for an explanation. Perhaps, he conjectures in December 1967, on the whole people think that it is not necessary to give little children something of any interest. It is as if the Germans did not like to buy a book in which the illustrations remind them of comics, he points out in 1968. This may be due to the fact that the Germans have a tremendous sense of order, he speculates. <laughs> children's, <laughs> children's books, but it's a, it's a little better than what you think. Children's books have to look like this and comic cartoons like that. And to many Germans, it is quite unthinkable that these two kinds could be mixed. Sooner or later, he hopes, this might change. Over the years, however, his optimism shrivels down and morphs into irritation with the authors, especially the feisty Margaret. After the long silence that followed the couple's visit in 1973 and then H.A.'s death in 1977, Carlson fends off defensively Margaret's inquiries about the delayed royalty payments. And I quote, you may well ask, whatever happened to you? As a matter of fact, what had happened, unfortunately, is that your excellent cocoa books, strangely enough, cannot sell in Germany. Our German branch has six people traveling around Germany selling our books. And we have a sales meeting twice a year. If you only knew how I have been telling these people how much the children love these books, how popular they are in Scandinavia, etc., and it's still impossible to sell them in Germany. To conclude, and uh, sort of it breaks off rather suddenly here. When the student writer for the Brandeis University paper, The Justice, visited Margaret's last home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the place startled her, and I quote, with the pervasive presence of Curious George, who appears in clusters of stuffed animals at opposite sides of the living room, or in the bookshelf, which displays the full saga of seven stories translated into 12 languages, including Finnish, Japanese, and Braille. In the, and the deaf uh, history of um, Curious George Publishing is probably another chapter there. Um, in the interview, maybe there's Esperanto too, I don't know, <laughs> in, the, in the interview that Margaret gave on that day, the student would later write, The author modestly accepted, and I'm quoting here, the fact that she is responsible for an international children's classic. It's so famous that I don't even believe it, Margaret explains. explains. This was exactly the point when, after many years of trying to find a cozy place in the academy, Margaret finally began to adjunct at Brandeis, directing first year writing tutorials. With her students, she insisted on the same clear, simple, forceful language, plain English, as she referred to it. That is something very translatable. That, in combination with her and her husband's dramatic drawing style, made her actually less international than she liked to imagine. Thank you.
0: Wow, okay, thank you. Thank you so much for two really fascinating papers and such rich source material. It was really, really interesting enjoyable. Um, and enjoyable. And. So I think what's interesting is both are talking about um, the global itineraries of books and how crossing borders um, can transform book content um, and indeed kind of constraints, I suppose, particularly in in the latter paper, can really, um, you know, cultural constructs of childhood, cultural understandings of the market, um, educational priorities um, can really shape the way these commodities flow or, or indeed don't flow. Um, And I just, I suppose, wanted to briefly highlight that both of these focus on the literary genre or I suppose really we should call it a publishing category of children's books Um, and the business of selling children's books to different markets and the particular problems of translation um, that that poses. Um, So both analyse, um, so particularly Catherine's um, paper analysed a um, a book project that, turns on utopian ideals of childhood um, and children as hope for the future, as future citizens and offering, children's books offering a way to construct a new order Um, and that's an internationalist idea that really gains currency um, as well on a global scale with, um, in the 20th century particularly in the wake of two world wars the idea that somehow children's books, promoting quality children's books across the globe and creating this kind of world republic of childhood is somehow going to um, create uh, kind of prevent world war breaking out again what's interesting though is that the agents of these global itineraries of books are publishers and this is a business um, and so that, that's the kind of the question that's going around in my head is um, particularly picture books, um, you know children's books are illustrated normally and um, they therefore pose particular translation projects Problems which you both brought out really well, but it also kind of bring, raises issues of costs. Um, it's expensive, and you know that's why you see in the 1950s the expansion of co editions um, to share those costs. Um, so as for Catherine, I was quite curious um, about this kind of trans. The, the, the Soviet books, if I'm correct in thinking, are funded by the state. Essentially, this is. State propaganda. I'm fascinated that they're then picked up by Jonathan Cape in the UK and Houghton Mifflin Mifflin in the States. Can you tell us a little bit about? (laughs) 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 Are they targeting different markets at all? I mean, you know, why would they commissioning new illustrations? I mean, those beautiful but linocuts rather than photographs. Anyway, that, that's, there's so many questions there I have, but um, just to say, really, really enjoyed that. And then I suppose what was really coming to my mind when I was listening to your paper, Julia, um, is children's literature is notoriously, um, when it's, it's a heavily adapted, we tamper with children's literature in a way that perhaps auth- we have more respect for authors for adults. Um, Particularly because we construct the idea of the child reader as incompetent, um, so perhaps not capable of dealing with unfamiliar material. You know, those poor German kids couldn't possibly cope with American comic. You know, um, and it's also linked as well to, again, this idea that um, books um, are vehicles for the enculturation of children. So they have, kind of, they have to respond to national priorities as well. And that really came through um, in that wonderful correspondence you were citing, this idea that ch- childhoods in America and Europe are very, very different. Um, so that's more of an observation than a question, really. But um, now, as I promised, I'm going to collect a few questions from the floor so that we can get the conversation started. Thank you. I think supposedly
3: asked the thing and my question to kind of ask, the ask so I get to ask the asking questions from you yet. Yeah. Uh, and one I want to bring this with anecdote my son was gifted uh, a baby picture book from Germany. It's about firefighters, uh that shows situations of real peril and the ultimate spread has the firefighters three seven to me who to be a casualty of road accident that mm-hmm. used to be dead. <laughs> 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 now, I, 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 so I thought it was very useful book. I to me. at that page at which point I reconsidered whether or not I wanted to see it. And, so, um, and, and that kind of speaks. I think that um, the question of translatability uh, translatability of cultures <laughs> remains. Um, as I, I was as I was listening to Yulia talking about Margaret Wright and commenting on these conversations, it occurred to me something that I find in kind of. Um, in analyzing writings of uh, letters of Russian emigres in the United States. And I was wondering whether the very act of kind of volunteering to do this commissioning and kind of interpreting German culture for the American publisher, uh, commenting on the possibilities of translation. And actually, and, and she's not only, co- she, like sh- her commenting on, is actually a cultural commentary, right? And she makes all these like, about. German and American culture and how they compare, I wonder if this is like an act of self-inscription into the American culture and kind of self-assertion and kind of belonging to, to American culture and establishing yourself in that way. And, and the ultimate proof of your success is,
4: um, is that you produce use your American classic. I just wanted to add on to that because I had the same while listening to Julia's paper and I wondered if we got a lot of of your author's kind of commentary that she wrote into private correspondence with the publishers but you had also mentioned that there was a certain type of public persona which I guess presumes that were they these immigrant translators you said kind of demonstrably emphasized their um, uh, their fluency in multiple languages and all the rest but it seemed that in the correspondence with the publishers she was translating her own subjectivity. And I even wrote down a couple of the phrases, right? Our taste, the Germans, plain English. It was like a constant rhetorical shift to root herself into American culture to translate her own, her own worldview into. Um, so there's, the, <laughs> there's like the, the translation issue of the books, the children's books themselves, but also I think a kind of subjectivity of an Amer- immigrant experience that is a really fascinating part of this project of yours also. Yeah, thank you both for these great
5: papers. My question is for Kat, and um, maybe this sort of a bigger question. (laughs) Sorry, not to be difficult, but I I was sort of struck for the first time thinking about I never really thought before about you know for Soviet historians these photographs of sort of five-year plan industrial construction are so just like part and parcel of what we do. I don't usually sort of think about them, and you know the messages they're designed to convey. But it sort of occurred to me that that must have been a relatively new subject of photography that presumably people weren't really doing before the revolution that they were photographing people or landscapes or whatever um and so there's obviously a lot of propaganda work done in the soviet union and it goes part and parcel with all their other messages of how people are supposed to understand those images i'm sort of more curious in a foreign context, like how do you translate those construction images? You know, when people see the image of a factory, it's so technical or whatever. This building plant. How do you get them to, you know, understand the larger messages that are behind it? Um,
6: one, uh, one uh, It's actually more of a comment for uh, for Julia. Um, a nice comparison might be actually the history of. Disney comics in in Germany and why that works and I mean I'm just anecdotally telling what other people have have worked on and I mean there's obviously a different scale but I mean they realize that Disney is not selling in Europe and what they then do is they shift the whole production to Northern Italy and change the format to what they perceive as a European format so you don't have these comics, uh, comics of small... uh, uh, small sort of 25 or 13 pages but you have the, uh, the, they turn into real books uh, what, what then in Germany is called the Lustige Taschenbuch and what, what they also do is uh, and, and, uh, they, they completely change the stories so they retain the characters in the drawing but they, they, they I mean the Lustige Taschenbuch in, in Italy in Scandinavia and in West Germany is, is successful because they adapt cultural stories Europeans are familiar with like the Flying Dutchman. and those kinds of, or opera, uh, and they just turn it into, into Disney comics. Um, and they, they, they then hire, uh, well, translators in the country. And then the German ones, Elka who then becomes a massive star in the comic scene. Uh, and they see exclusive translator for, for Disney in, in Germany, and turns this into a, this massive success story. Uh, so, so, that might be a nice comparison by this type of, literature is working in Germany and in your example um, isn't. And um, for for Catherine, um, I was wondering, I mean, following up on your question, how is that distributed in in Western countries, I mean, is there a particular left-wing connection? Uh, And does that sort of, in terms of who's buying that and who's distributing this? And I mean, it seems to feed into all these Discourses about state planning you also have in the, in the West. so I think there's an iconography and a political framework where this actually fits quite neatly into, if you think about New Deal and other types of state planning projects in the New period. So, I mean, is there a particular audience and, and how is that sort of distributed in Western countries? Okay, I think we'll take one last question. I saw you. <laughs> uh, it's,
7: it's sort of the same question to both of you, but it takes different angles. <coughs> it's to do with... Um, what's very interesting is, is is the way that you're looking at books that are being translated at, at around the same time as they're coming out in the original language. And I thought it was very interesting about your, your opening of your paper. That was about this idea of what happens now and how that temporal shift and everything we know now about the USSR and all of those waves historically that we've gone through, how that's actually changing the ways in which the translation is happening. So I wanted if you could say a little bit more about that. And to Julia, it's it's your work and I'm wondering how how far up you're bringing this project because it's making me think I had had a student um, doing a master's project on the translation of Harry Potter into Mm -hmm. Russian and um, she said that it was what was fascinating about the narrative that she was constructing was that the first book was translated in a very kind of open and free sort of way and it was very experimental and then when Warner Brothers bought the rights to Harry Potter, they just clamped down on this because it was this, this icon that had, had cultural power that they wanted to control. And so they wouldn't, for example, let them creatively, creatively play with the names of the characters mm-hmm. to find resonances in Russian or to all the spells or anything like that. It had to sound like it sounded in the films, mm-hmm. um, which has then formed this massive uh, <coughs> sort of project of online amateur translation of Harry Potter, which water Bros. is which, um, which, but so I'm wondering if, you know, when Curious George becomes a cultural icon, does he then translate in different way?
1: Okay, so the question, um, I'm, so both the distribution and then the publishing question, um, I haven't worked closely with sort of, with any sort of correspondence or the archival documents next step to try to figure out some of these questions. Um, but I'll expand the picture just a little bit. Um, what is very interesting, um, about the translations I didn't talk about, and that's for me the German and the French, is that they keep the photographs. Actually, I haven't seen the German one, but I think John Hartfield readapted the photographs for the German, which is oh. significant, and I just haven't. It's, it's rare to find that one than the others. The French fixes a lot of the problems that exist <laughs> in the Russian editions. Their publishing is better, their paper is better, <laughs> and they're able to take, they actually take the second edition, which is printed on better paper. And they photograph the photographs. Mm -hmm. And they replace them actually more effectively in the French um, to an extent too. So you can also see um, that the money at play here will significantly shift um, the iconicity and the formation and the way in which these images are working. Um, And then you know, I don't know enough, I'm I'm also going to go down this about the Houghton Mifflin or Jonathan Cape sort of where this fits, but George Counts is the instrumental figure in both of these. Um, And from what I understand too, um, a lot of the the translations of these Soviet books which are coming to, 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 to George Count's. Um, via have books actually and other connections that he has. Um, he is the one getting them translated and then sending them to Britain to the British socialist organization there. Um, And so that's the way they're making it back in. And a lot of that is through children's literature and pedagogical texts. So he's really overseeing those translations um, and interested in those questions. He also takes a really fantastic road trip across the USSR um, in 1932, which is another different story. Um, Then the question of industrial photography is a big one. Um, It's actually also an international story. Um, So, one of the reasons why Margaret Burke White comes is because she has gained a reputation in the U.S. in exactly this moment as the master of industrial photography there. This is also similar in the John Hartfield story and his impact on U.S.S.R. and construction too. There's a, a large international exchange around the questions of the best ways, the right ways, the most artistic ways now to represent industry. But this also feeds into the domestic questions of what Soviet photography is in the early 1930s and its relationship to the rise of socialist realism so um, we have a lot of experimentation particularly around industrial sites um, and around industrial products as a celebration of sovietness and soviet production Um, sometimes and this is the big scandal of the the late 20s and early 30s, that is the formalist divide, right? The fragmentation of industrial imaging via people like the, Ro- the October Group and Rochenko, um, and then the, the pushback against this fragmentation, um, this artistic representation, as it were, well, this formalist representation of industrial sites that no one can read. A lot of this is framed in um, literacy. Um, that you you sort of have to train people in this. There's even children's books that I have actually argued are training children to read fragmented objects um, as a photo game. The photo photo game, which is also ubiquitous in in American children's Uh, magazines shows up quite a bit in this period in Russia, too, with very famous photographers like Rochenko and other members of the October group who are taking these odd angle shots and then asking children to guess what they see. Um, So they're sort of training children to also read this, but this falls out of favor by 1932 and certainly by, by 37. It's actually later much later in photography than it is for literature, the sort of rise of socialist realism, and it becomes important, like we see in the Tale of the Plan, to narratively inscribe photography, sort of tell its story. You cannot fragment it in that same way anymore, um, and this provides one model for socialist realist visual productions. I didn't quite and I'm sorry, I don't have the distribution question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I might, I, I, I don't actually know anything about distribution in the 1930s, yeah. uh, but in researching this and publishing history around it I've come across at least one New York agency that was run by a Russian woman from New York I'm not sure who exactly she is if she's like an AKVD transplant (laughs) (laughs) or if um, She is an emigre somehow co-op or recruited as an agent or I I don't know anything about her other than her name and I'd be willing to share that with anybody who wants to run with this idea because I haven't been able to track uh, down anything more. And through her, uh, the Soviet publishing houses, especially the central ones, end up pushing quite a few production novels for distribution in the US. And of course, places like Houghton Mifflin, which is in whose records they came across this, they have no interest in it. And another interesting thing about Houghton Mifflin, um, and it's really fascinating that we have this intersection, is that they see, they're particularly fascinating in the American context because they see themselves as purveyors of all things American. They, in the, through the 1930s and, and uh, initially they're guided by somebody who's a real Anglophile, then he retires in the late 1930s and, or early 1940s and the house becomes more and more American and, and they call it the American burden weighs heavily upon them. And so, of course, there's no chance for the Soviet production novel <laughs> novels to be published there.
1: Oh, I was gonna say really, really quickly, the book was marketed in America and in Britain as um, a pedagogical tool, not for children to read, but for teachers to teach them about the first five-year plan. So also to an extent, it's aimed at adult readers mm-hmm. to then translate for kids, as it were. Um, so it is a different a different kind of framing. Uh, whereas in the Soviet case, the distribution is for, for 12 That's to 14-year-olds.
2: No, no, no. I just wanted to going back to publishing history and adults versus children's literature, and whether we temper more with children's literature than adult literature. That's a fascinating question, and I I don't know if I have an answer for it, but I also don't want to overstate that because it's so tempting for obvious reasons, because we're rearing the next generation, and why not inculcate them with the values that are most seminal in the current political and historical moment. I
0: suppose it's, it's just a kind of truism in children's yeah. literature yeah. research, though. Yeah, but I, but I wonder,
2: having <laughs> looked, because I've spent quite a bit of time studying the unpublished author phenomenon in the 40s, where I, I don't want to go into it too much. The publishing industry kind of expands on the one hand because it needs to serve the state and the total war effort. On the other hand, it also shrinks because it cannot publish all people who want to be published and definitely not all the immigrants who come in and have skills uh, with writing but don't necessarily have the linguistic skills to shore that up. Um, So it seems that agents really want to shape adult literature as much as they want to shape the children's literature, and they want as many changes, unless it's a book from a journalist or somebody who writes very sleazy uh, erotic novels. Uh, They really want to craft the final product as much in kid lit as as in adult. Uh, So I don't know. I don't want to. I'm cautious about overstating that. And as far as national priorities, absolutely. And what I find really fascinating in the Margaret Ray phenomenon, and this is an answer to several questions at the same time is that they absolutely try to kind of overcompensate for their not yet being American by trying to see more American than Americans. Um, uh, but they, in the process of doing so, they end up reconfiguring American in some ways as international. So for them, writing like an American, and they're really, it's, This biography is in a lot of ways about how they end up emerging as seminal American authors and what the language gap has to do with that, what is the abandonment of language and adoption of action has to play in that process. But in that very process, they also peddle American as international, and try to pretend that if you write like an American, then your career as as a global classic is already made and uh, signed. (laughs) So uh, that's kind of a bizarre misunderstanding that ends up happening in the course of their uh, career as Far of the graphic nature of German book, children's literature publishing. I think that, that also is a truism, but it's a truism that lives up to, you know, if you look from the Grimms to Peter in the 19th century, it ends up living up to, to its reputation, I think. Um, but it's fascinating that in the reviews that Margaret writes, the gruesomeness never comes to the fore. She's actually uh, quite into the graphic detail if it's there, and her only complaint is that it's not there enough. Uh, so she would probably love the, the book that you talked about because it talks about subjugating a river as if it were an animal and then there's a, this very drastic dramatization going on there. She was really very much for it and she's not finding this in the post very cautious post-war German books. They're trying to really tread lightly <laughs> around the truisms that have accrued to German children's literature in the course of a century and a half past and uh, self-assertion and belonging, absolutely. So that's a very salient comment. And I'm actually, what I'm, I'm, so the triple phenomenon that I'm interested in is their transition from refugees or mult or step migrants as they call them cuz they kind of made themselves into refugees cuz they weren't supposed to be refugees they were in brazil already and then they went back actually to nazi germany which they never talked about in 1936 and they lived there in hamburg for 6 months and they never ever mentioned that to anyone so it's only apparent in their daily journals if you read them very very carefully because all of a sudden Uh, They uh, switch to German, so they're kind of language chameleons, they write in the language of the country where they currently are, and because they speak all these languages of the countries where they currently are, it's kind of easy to see how they transition from one to another. Um, So it's this kind of transition from being a refugee to being a quintessential American author, because most Americans don't even know that they were not American, or not American born, let's put it this way, because they became American in 1946. Um, So the other aspect is this language gap and then the third aspect is their coupledom and because I'm very interested in how uh, creating as a couple, especially as a childless couple, they're very, uh, speaking of (laughs) what qualifies you to talk about children and what doesn't, they were very upfront about not having children. As a matter of fact, when Margaret is being asked uh, how they Interact with the children's audience in mind or how they write keeping the audience in mind. She says well, you know as a matter of fact uh, Creation comes easily and we never think about a child audience. Uh, It's absolutely beside the point moreover. I really don't like children (laughs) Which startles every single? uh, interviewer and from that point on the interview usually goes in a very different direction to change the topic quite drastically (laughs) So this kind of dynamic between he and him and her, and they're very different personalities. Uh, They also interact with language differently. Uh, They are responsible for different sides of the creative process. Um, And they also die at very different points in time. There's like a 20-year gap between them. And to go back to the question, when does it all end and how much do you want to keep writing this, I think to just preserve my own sanity, I'm actually putting a... Semi colon, let's put it, call it this way, at uh, his death in 1977. She lives for 19 years longer, uh, but because it's the end of their kind of creation period as a couple, that's when it ends for me. So I will have a postscript on the translations and her. Amazing amount of litigation around who owns Curious George and uh, how the rights to all these things are being sold worldwide to toys to, you know, licensing worldwide because it gets very complicated and she feels cheated constantly. So she keeps litigating. Um, so I will add that as a postscript or as an epilogue of sort of sorts but it ends um at some point there and as for the disney comment absolutely that's uh, a fascinating thing to look into and um i will do that and it's also interesting because europeans do a lot of comics that way like with asterix and obelix there's a lot of adjustments there too and the fascinating thing that Dis, uh, that h.a ray was commissioned uh to work for disney in 1939 and for some reason and i haven't been able to track that down when he arrives in 1940 The contract that he claims to have signed, because so many things get lost, is not there. So he cannot work for them, and they don't want him anymore because they have enough illustrators. Um, But he also draws in a very particular style that initially seen. It's very European in in America. And actually, if you study German illustration in the 1930s, they all draw like Ray he's absolutely nothing remarkable. And the fact that he, so it's, it's kind of a liability on the one hand because so, this drawing style is so foreign when he arrives in the United States. On the other hand, it's also a win for him because he's unlike everyone else and he's able to capitalize on it at some point.
1: I realize I forgot to answer Claire's question. I want to come back to it very, very quickly, if it's okay. (laughs) Jump in there. This is the um, what we know now question. Um, This is a big question. And this is, I was thinking about this in the translations, too, because, of course, in the translations, there's always an introduction, which also explicates the burden of, of what you see. So there's a translation that follows, but let us contextualize this for you. And what we see in our in, in the Playing Soviet project, and what we have for the annotations, they're being done both by scholars, some scholars have done them, and then I'm also bringing it into the classroom. I'm having students do annotations now. Um, and so what it is, is, it becomes there's the burden. So there's the translation, the actual translation of text. And then there's the explication of the visual content. And then there's a larger step back for context, right? So we're doing, there's all these layers and this burden to make sure that it's all translated, as it were, um, sort of in the history of the development of the visual language, of what is pictured as well. Sometimes I had students dealing with this dirigible that landed in Moscow and one picture has a giant chef stepping out of it. And it took us all (laughs) a while to figure out what is going on with the chef because there's no explanation in in the text. Turns out when the German dirigible came to Russia in 1930, it had the first air steward on board and they were making a big deal of it, but I had no idea. You know, so all of these things, it, it becomes, and we feel that we have to. Right? There's also this burden on us to make sure that we, the, the unexplainable is has some sort of marker and that we've gone deep enough to try to, to make it accessible for those who, know, who don't know the history, and even those of us who do, who don't know anything about the first air steward.
0: Thank you. Are there, we have, yep.
8: Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm an American,
0: and I've read Curious George more times than I want
8: to. I know the feeling. <laughs> so I, I have two children, I've read Curious George, all of Curious George, just many, 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 many times. It was given to me, given to us by my um, mother-in-law, who loved it as a child, right? So I, I didn't remember it from my own childhood. And I think many of us who read books to children um, have had this experience of not understanding what the world was appealing about. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hate Curious
0: George, right? Like every time I "Okay, let's do Curious George." Yeah.
8: However, being an American and having my children here, and raising my children here, I was always struck by it as being um, very, very American. American. It really always struck me as incredibly American. Yeah. I knew that they were immigrants, uh, actually, but but and visually, there are aspects of it that are incredibly American, and not only American but New York. Like there's some of the yeah. stories, so I'm from New York, so some of the stories, yep. it's just very strongly New York, mm-hmm. and suburban New York, potentially mm-hmm. Connecticut. You know, there's a lot of it that is very, very familiar. And then, so American on one hand, and also it always struck me as kind of hyperbolically American, so the main character, for <laughs> those of you who haven't had the pleasure, George, mm-hmm. right? Uh, <laughs> then the other one is the man with the yellow hat. Mm-hmm. And the man with the yellow hat, which was never named, has this kind of stylized cowboy hat thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always struck me as really weird, you know, why is he kind of looking like a cowboy and he drives this big American car? And um, anyway, that's kind of just by the way of the, uh, an observation, and I would wait to talk about that. And I wanted to just clarify because I wasn't quite sure I understood what you were saying. Is, is the German case, in fact, the outlier in Europe? Yeah. Okay, so then. I, then I it's the question.
2: outlier in the world.
8: Right. So that, so that, that's very interesting, right? Yeah. what it's fascinating. And then my other, uh, the point I wanted to make is just another observation and a question too. And it had to do with that last image that you showed. Yeah. I think it was the last one, the Schi, the Petty right? That of yeah, hyphodic, hyphodic, yeah hyphodic, that hyphodic. Big, yeah. which Which mode completely changes, seems to me, right? Mm-hmm. So like, if you go back to that, yeah. Suddenly, you know, it's not actually about the industrial yeah. about mm-hmm. the image at all. It's about the man, mm-hmm. right? If you look at the two of them side by side, and I wonder if, if, if you had anything to say about that, if that was typical or not typical, right? Because it's it really changes the. It seems to mm-hmm. me the iconography. It's really about the female form. He cuts out most of the bottom part of the, of the injury. that yeah. one. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. yeah. really yeah. very, very, very different. So is that yeah. is that typical? Is that an outlier again? Is that just something right. that you do? I just wanted you to comment on that a
1: bit. Yeah, I'm just, just that. Yeah. Do you want to go first since the images is are- out? Uh, sure, really quickly. Um, so this is actually really strange because it's not in the book. So this is the other thing I want to point out. Um, this re- I left this sort of uncommented. I don't have any idea why it's in here. There's not really an explication of paper mills or anything like this. And so I'm wondering where he saw this. I, I actually think that he saw, well, usually this photograph doesn't appear with the bottom half. Oh. So he likely saw it um, as, as the excerpted version of it, or the, the cut the cut version of it, and likely not as this full version, but I haven't yet traced out where he would have seen it, mm-hmm. um, and why it was included. It was sort of a strange, again, in this, this, this additive function, it is an outlier, mm-hmm. especially because I was picking out these pieces that were not adapted from the photographs in the, in the original, right, in the original Russian editions, um, and so I'm not quite sure why this one appears. Um, and I wanted to leave it there to kind of yeah. ruminate on why and <laughs> try yeah. to figure out yeah, exactly what this outlier is doing.
2: Yeah, uh, there were several things. I mean, thanks so much for the questions, great. So as for the German case, it's absolutely an outlier and I don't really have more of a, a better explanation for it than I've tried to sort of guess. Um, or plot here, and I know that I haven't actually provided the answers. I'm still looking for them, and I don't know whether there are answers or not. It's, it's a very complicated question because they also, the Rays came to Germany for the first time as part of re education program. They wrote this, Margaret actually alone wrote this one book called Spotty, which is about a spotted um, puppy who is neither black nor white. Um, in America, he's distributed um, in a lot of black American schools at the time to talk about race. And in some white American schools where some conversations about race are going on, and then is dispatched to Germany through the military connections, army connections, specifically of Margaret's brother, who serves in the French Foreign Legion in the Second World War, and then ends up being part of, then emigrates to the States and becomes a very successful lawyer for the US military, and eventually prosecutes Holocaust. Uh, expropriation crimes in Germany. So he hooks her up with somebody who is an editor of an army magazine uh, that is putting together a US government or OMGOS program for sending books to Germany to re- and Austria to re educate children there. And that's how Spotty gets there because it's about a puppy that's multiracial, quote unquote. Uh, <laughs> and it, uh, Germans really resent um, the rays. That was the first encounter between the Germans and the race and that may or may not have had anything to do with how the authors are perceived. So it may have been their obsession with action and their mixing of registers between comic and other types of books that the Germans didn't like because they had a tremendous sense of order. (laughs) Or it may have been the memory of the generation that grew up in 1950s that they were forced to read at school this book about spotted puppy that was so terribly boring and you know, lacked any kind of detail and had a very uh, simplistic narrative. Um, so it's really difficult to kind of get down to the bottom of what actually conditioned that relationship. And as for the narrative being hyper-American, I completely agree, and yes, curious George, it's really not for adults. It's not one of these crossover narratives that Margaret Ray mentions that could work for adults or for children, for sure. And it's very American that way, because I think that a lot of American children's literature is not necessarily targeting both at the same time, like sometimes in, you see certain European stories that are clearly aiming working in two registers the adult and and the child and in the states, you have to look for books uh, more frequently that 's my just my parental impression. But as for the hyperbolic american it's it's interesting because the man in the yellow hat is a safari. Uh, a safari man. He visits Africa, and that's how he lays his hands and curies George. And then he kind of forgets to take off his safari. <laughs> I think the fifth helmet disappears, but uh, he's wearing this incongruous yellow this hat. With he's Papa, like, yeah. He's wearing that hat. that's like a cowboy style hat, even in
8: the one where he goes
2: to Africa. Oh, really? There's yeah. no fifth helmet no, because no. I, I forget. I mean,
8: I get. He goes to Africa and steals
2: this little Yeah. And then there's and there's a lot of there there's a lot of postcolonial critique yeah. uh, written <laughs> yeah. about Curious so that's out there, and I, I'm not going to rehash a it. But man stealing a
4: monkey.
2: And, that, and and that's the, and that's the paradox <laughs> that it's it's kind of the layering of exoticism on the one hand. So here's an American going to Africa and doing what all Westerners do in other continents, plunder.
8: <laughs> you know. Then they make a Hollywood movie of George, like they go to Hollywood, right? It's like the American
2: place, like it's really American, right? Yeah, no, and and then there is George who is actually not American, but his un-Americanness is completely suppressed because, I mean, he's a a speechless monkey, what are you gonna do with it? (laughs) (laughs) So there is, you know, what I'm struck by in these books is that there is a, a shadow of multiculturalism in Madeline books, for instance, much more than in Curious George because she's a French girl and everything is set in Paris or Spain or other European, Um, stories up to the last installment where she actually discovers that she has American roots um, because her grandfather is a rancher in Texas or some such (laughs) you know so um, there is this kind of conflict between the the very uh, multicultural possibility potentiality of these stories uh, and it's there there is a hinted cultures But it's never expressed in any kind of way that has anything to do with language. And in the original designs for his books that he draws on arrival in New York, Ray actually draws up lists because his English is not amazing yet. He draws up these lists of words that he could use in prospective books. And the first book is called Pictionary and all it is is wordplay. Like there's this one about a hare who is... uh, looking for fresh air, but is really smoking a cigar and looking debonair or something like that, you know. I mean, there is really a lot of wordplay and that book never gets published and it's really difficult to find out why because Ursula Nordstrom of Harper and Sons actually wants it, she wants to send a contract and Ray never submits it even though the book is complete. And there are several renditions of it. I mean, no color separations or anything like that, but the book is mapped. And it just never sees the light of day, and it's the only book where he plays with language. So there is some multiculturalism in all these books. There is a hint at multiple races, at encounters of cultures, but it's only always a hint. So I don't really know what to make of the Americanness, because it's never quite American
9: mm-hmm.
2: at the same time, you know?
0: It also, that initial story kind of reminds me of Baba with the... Yeah. yeah. So there's a little Frenchness no, there. Yeah. <laughs> We have one last question, you were very politely <laughs> waiting, and then I think we better give a coffee. Uh,
9: so I, I was thinking you know, about an opposite example that you always encounter in Germany, which is something that has emerged in the English language context, but only is popular in Germany, which is dinner for one. Oh, yeah. so, anyway, <laughs> and, and Germans assume that everybody from England knows yeah. dinner for one, but nobody from England knows dinner for one. So yeah. there's there's a... a Opposite examples mm-hmm. like that right? yeah. ALF is another example which is only in the US and Germany and it is well. And it mm-hmm. is but it's not in the UK mm-hmm. at all, whereas all the Germans assume it is, So, so I think there's the opposite example as well. Yeah. And the other question that I have is how is Curious George do in other English speaking markets? Because if it's so high for what happens in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Britain? Is it it's not as popular as in the US? But I wonder if there might be, is it more popular in Canada where maybe people understand American culture in a more intimate way than, say, in the UK? And that might be a way to kind of tease out this question of what the American does in foreign markets.
2: That's a great question. I actually don't have an answer to this last one. Or the first, the first comment either, because I'd have to think more about the the sort of the, the reverse image of the transfer and how it works, the, the opposite way. But I actually don't remember. I've looked at all uh, correspondence with all the publishers uh, that there is. I haven't read it very carefully, but I know what there is, and I can't even remember whether there are letters from Canadian and New Zealand publishers or Australian publishers for that matter. So that would be something to look at more closely, but there's also a batch of Ray files in Oregon where I haven't yet been. I'm going there in a couple of weeks, so maybe something will turn up there. So I don't even know that they've appeared there. So they've definitely appeared, the many Curious George books have appeared in Great Britain. And that was actually the publisher who was Chatter and Windus, that was their original publisher. And they, were, they would have come out much earlier if it hadn't been for the war because uh, a lot of things got lost in transit and there was a big drama around publishing that. Uh, and they were relatively popular and sold well, but the interesting thing is that usually the correspondence with the publishers that I have access to and that there seems to be, all it is is usually invoices and royalty payments and the original contract. And the only time when you have this extensive discussion of what is going on between the lines is with Houghton Mifflin, the American publisher, Harper uh, and Brothers, and the various iterations thereof. Um, That's the second American publisher. They don't publish the same series. um, And also Chad and Windus. Uh, so where it seems to be doing well, but and and the German publisher and Scandinavian publisher, so all the other publishers, including like the Soviet publisher, Curious George never appeared in the Soviet Union during the Cold War, but there were there was another Ray Book and Constellations that did, and there's correspondence with the Russian translator, Soviet translator, and you know there's just not much discussion going on. It's usually just invoices and fiscal matters that are cleared. So there's. It's very difficult to glean much about the success, but I, I think that there are probably reviews and other um, important documents that would be worthwhile to study there. So that's a great point, thank you.
0: Okay, well thank you very much for an excellent panel and very interesting discussion.